Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 18, and I'm Joshua. And I'm Mike. And uh, we've just been doing some cleaning around the shop. Uh, we have been very busy in front of computers, and we're transitioning away from that now. Super exciting. Yeah. Uh, so things that have been going on, uh, your book, Another Work is Possible, is at the printer. Yep. It is being printed as we speak. We expect to see it back here within a few weeks, right? Yep. That's the plan. And so if you've ordered that book, um, basically as soon as we get it, we're going to be shipping them out. So uh, hold on just a few more weeks. <laughs> it's almost here. Yeah, the printer sent some pictures uh, some teaser pictures, uh, so it's it's exciting. It's nice. good to see that. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, we've been getting ready for. Uh, we are, are planning our summer workshop. Um, so we have uh, on June eighth through the twelfth, we're going to have another pre-industrial immersion workshop. Yeah. Uh, having six students in, uh, we did the work exchange. So, uh, if you uh, heard us talk about the last workshop. We're planning on doing the same thing again. Yeah, it was amazing. We, you know, we, uh, the group of people we had, we're, you know, it's going to be tough to top how great it was last time, but we will try. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, the way it works again is there's, there's no uh, money changing hands. It's just a, um, like a work exchange. So we have the six students help us with a project around the shop or the property for two days. Uh, last time we set the granite blocks, the foundation for the blacksmith shop. Um, this time, who knows? Yeah. We have a bunch of different projects around here. Um, it might involve being outside. Definitely will involve uh, being sweaty yes. and working. Yeah. Um, and then the so that's the first two days. Then the last three days of the five day event uh, is bench time. It's instruction. It's, uh, working on a furniture building project, uh, using pre-industrial tools. So that's the plan. Um, we will be, uh, releasing the application for this event. Um, we're going to be releasing that next week. Um, and so that's how you sign up. Uh, we have the application, just a couple basic questions, you know, why do you want to do this? How would this benefit you? That kind of thing. And then we just look through the applications and uh, pick the the six people that we think are probably going to be uh, a good fit. Huh? So. Yeah. And you've got to print the application and mail it to us. Yeah. It's it's not as easy as, you know, clicking stuff online and sending it in that way. The other The other reason I think this is good is because... Sometimes what can happen with signing up for classes, you know, if it's like a first come first serve thing, um, as fair as that sounds, some, right. sometimes it turns into like this feeding frenzy kind of thing where, you know, if you miss the email and you're a week late or something and other people signed up or whatever, we just wanted to avoid that whole thing. So we're giving several weeks, anyone who wants to apply, whether you live in Massachusetts or you live in Croatia, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can... Um, Fill out an application, mail it to us, um, and we will sort through them. So uh, we are so looking forward to that, yeah, that workshop. Yeah, it's going to be really great. Um, other things going on later this year, we have a couple events that we are going to. The old standby, and this is the, the, the big show in our backyard, and it is actually, I mean, I'd say it's one of the 
best shows around for, yeah. you know, hand tool woodworking. Uh, the Lee Nielsen Open House uh, down in Warren, Maine. That's just an hour and a half from us, roughly. Yep. Um, that is on July 10th and 11th. Uh, so you should look for us there. Uh, we'll have the, the booth and uh, some magazines. Issue 8 will be there and in stock. We'll have the yeah, book. Totally. We'll have uh, a bunch of planes. You can come and make shavings. Uh, just stop by and say hi. Yeah. Um, we love that event. They always do um, the the last night. They do a big um, like a lobster cookout, and I I hear Peter Galbert is the keynote speaker this that'll year. Be so awesome. Peter be a is such a great teacher. Yeah. Um, that'll be great. I remember. Uh, I think it was was it last year, the year before. I'm getting mixed up now, but. I remember um, a guy from Texas drove up with a friend uh, just to come to the Lee Nielsen open house. Wow. And so this isn't just like a local backyard thing. This is, you know, people travel from around the country to come to this. Uh, so definitely make your plans. Wherever you live, yeah. you got to be at Lee Nielsen. Yeah, uh, I think it gets better time. every year. Yeah. So uh, the other one, big one, you know, the one that everyone is always waiting for. They are always wondering if it's going to happen again or if this was the last year. But no, Handworks is coming back. <laughs> Handworks 2020 in Amana, Iowa, uh, September 4th and 5th. Yeah. And uh, we are planning on being there. Yeah, it's going to be so awesome. I wasn't able to go last time because uh, my third baby was being born. Yeah, literally <laughs> on the Saturday. On, on the Saturday of the event. Was the birthday. So uh, I was out there. And it was great, and I, like, lost my voice. And uh, it was an incredible weekend. Um, met so many people. I mean, it was, it was just a blur, but I don't think I've ever seen so much focused enthusiasm for hand tools over that sort of extended period of time. Yeah. It was unreal. I'm looking forward to it. It's so be, can't it's wait. It's going to be great. Um, but the, the last little news update that uh, we thought of is just – you know, as a, it's brand new mm. news. Nobody else knows about it. Just Mike and me. Yeah. Uh, we just uploaded issue eight. Yep. To the printer. Literally so, <laughs> within what it's been half an hour. So, yeah. Something like that. And it's all been approved. Yeah. So issue eight is done. Completely done. It's at the printer. They are starting production now. So um, ironically, you know, the way life works, uh, my book. Another work is possible. Uh, yeah. We'll be arriving. Maybe the same day. Maybe during the packing party yeah. for the magazine. For Who knows? Uh, about the same time. So um, if you've ordered both, if you have a subscription to the magazine and you order the book, it's going to be a deluge of information yes. coming your way at one time. So You won't get them in the same box. No. But you might get them at the same time. That's true. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have um, some some juggling to do. But uh, I'm sure that uh, we and our volunteers are up for anything, <laughs> or almost anything, we'll say. That's why we like our volunteers. Yeah, <laughs> they are the best. Uh, so, yeah, issue eight is done. And uh, that's hence what I was saying. We're kind of transitioning here. Uh, we're starting on Windows again yep. and other uh, physical <laughs> manual projects <laughs> that we can actually get our hands dirty on yeah. more than just a keyboard so yeah. uh so for this uh, our discussion today we thought we would talk about some of the uh uh some of the highlights some of the articles in issue eight 
mm-hmm. some of uh, the backstory of the development of them or interesting things that uh, that we observed about about the authors or um, what brought around the articles. So uh, the one um, absolutely fascinating, this was like one of the coolest visits I've ever had. Yeah, uh, we went down to New Brunswick to meet, meet up with uh, Harry, Brian, and his wife, Martha. They are off the grid. Um, they built a, a house and a boat shop. Harry's a boat builder. Um, they, they modeled it after the, the Nearings, um, Scott and Helen Nearing, who wrote The Good Life and a, a whole bunch of other books about um, you know, sustainable living and, and uh, social action and, and all different topics. Uh, they were kind of the pioneers of the Back to the Land movement. Yeah. And Harry and Martha were super inspired by them back in the 1970s. Um, and also, Harry was really inspired by E.F. Schumacher in his book, uh, Small is Beautiful. And so when that book came out in the 1970s also, they were in the process of um, trying to figure out how they wanted to live and work and be uh, sustainable, live like humanely in a way that doesn't deplete resources for the next generation. And so um, uh, Schumacher's book was really revolutionary for Harry, and he started applying the principles in there to the way he went about his work, like how to make or how to use appropriate technology in the shop. He didn't want to waste so much energy doing little operations. He wanted to use the, the, the smallest amount of energy possible that, and, and have the operation still be efficient. Yeah. So um, his, his tools, they're kind of a combination of hand tools, a lot of hand tools around his shop. And then he has a few power tools, some that are powered off of a, um, a diesel engine that is under his shop. Um, and some that are powered off of his solar setup. Mm-hmm. And then he also has human-powered tools. So these are things like a maybe, you know, the coolest thing ever, his treadle-powered bandsaw. Yeah. Um, and you should check, I think you just posted today, today on yeah. Instagram a video of Harry using his treadle-powered bandsaw. It's a modified, you know, electric bandsaw, but it's now using bicycle parts uh, to just drive it off of one leg. It, I, I'm not a a huge power tool guy so bandsaws to me really don't enter into my mind but i'm like that's really dang cool. that is awesome <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so cool so efficient and you can wheel it around anywhere and uh you know you're not wasting any resources it's just you know your your lunch uh powering your leg so um so harry wrote all about his thought process, you know, the, the values that, that have driven him to make the choices he has, and just um, some of the ways he reasons through different operations yeah. for woodworking, like how he might consider buying a power tool for a certain operation or how he decides not to, that it's just not worth it. Um, it's a great article. Yeah, that, that was actually the thing about Harry's article that really stood out to me is it's not just saying, um, you know, there's one kind of tool I like, and so I'm just going to try to only ever use this one tool. He was saying, tools are tools. Uh, what I want to do, my what Harry's focus was, is to minimize uh, fossil fuel usage. Mm. And so he's saying, okay, uh, what's the most efficient way to achieve this, to uh, complete this operation? Um, and it may be that, you know, you use a... Uh, he has a, a table saw that he recently just got. Uh, for 30 years, he was building boats without a table saw. Um, but he just got one, and he's been 
downsizing his motor, depowering de- his saw. Yeah, depowering his saw. <laughs> that is the opposite direction of anything else right now. Yeah. So, um, he's just saying, well, what what do I need? And I think that's the thing that really, um, echo, the echo of Schumacher in in Harry's shop is you know, this whole idea of what do we need, yeah. and not how much can we get, but what do we just need? Yeah. What, how much is enough? How much is enough? And so, um, to the thing that was fascinating is just to see the thought process behind Harry's decisions. Hmm. Um, for me, I I'm just really into hand tools and human powered things. So for me. I'm not really cons- thinking about, you know, how to power it otherwise. Um, so it was interesting to hear, you know, why he made the choices he made um, and to see how that played out then really practically. Um, I think some people think about um, green energy or um, s- sort of a, an environmental uh, consciousness as very theoretical yeah. um, and, you know, only <laughs> relating to some kind of government policy or something. But for Harry, that is not at all uh, where it is. It, for him, it's saying, how can I live my life in a way that reflects my values? Mm. Um, and so it's just really a fascinating trip. Just yeah, he, like, hit the idea of his, you know, their solar array and stuff, he says, you know, you could put enough solar panels up here to have the typical lifestyle that anybody wants to have, yeah. but they're just asking the question, well, you know, what do we really need? Like how yep. little can we do? Yeah, um, it's just awesome. Harry, he he and Martha are just the sweetest people, and he's he's obviously brilliant. I mean, he's yeah. incredibly brilliant. Um, so it's a great article. Yeah, it was so much fun. The other one uh, that uh, is jumping out in my mind is um, our good friend Cameron Turner. He was uh, a workshop student last year. We got close with Cameron um, and he Cameron is an English teacher um, in a private high school uh, he teaches 11th and 12th grade girls um, and he wrote this article um, when he, the reason he came out to our workshop is actually because we kind of chose him because he had this whole project in mind uh, what he wanted to do was to learn how to use uh, pre-industrial tools um, although he's has used uh, different hand tools before he wanted to use wooden planes and that kind of thing because he had a new project for his students uh, what he wanted to do is as he was teaching uh, Henry David Thoreau in his English class he wanted to have a Thoreauvian sort of approach to learning this material and so he was saying let's not just sit here at our desks and read some commentary about Thoreau and just you know theorize about it let's do what Thoreau would do and uh, roll up our sleeves. And so what he did is he taught 62 students, um, none of whom even knew what a ha- or had ever used a hand plane before. Yeah. Uh, he taught them how to use these tools, and they, they built collectively, they built a pair of desks that are reproductions of uh, Thoreau's desk. Um, the desk is his, um, his original was a simple pine dex- desk uh, with... Uh, n- uh, nailed sides onto the four legs. Um, so it's a very simple design. It's a really great uh, beginner project. And so the article is, of course, not about the desk itself or um, it's not a step project kind of article. That's not the point. It's all about the value of uh, what he calls crafting and education mm. and the value of 
teaching um, these 62 girls how to use their hands. And it was all, um, for him, it was framed around uh, getting them to think about um, about their lives and um, what's meaningful in life and how, you know, sort of this idea of um, understanding your identity and making things that you want to make and not just purchasing things. Um, so he was getting these girls to think about this stuff, and it was really great because Cameron had these lofty goals. He convinced the school board to do this. Yeah, you know, it was amazing to be able to even try this. Yeah, um, and this is this is English class, English class. not shop class. They don't they didn't have a shop class. Yeah, so he uh, over several weeks this project happened. They put the thing together, um, and what was so cool to me is to see, to read at the end of the article to hear. Um, the thoughts from his students. Um, yeah. What some of these girls were saying about the, what their reflections were and what they want to do with their lives and how it's really made them think differently. Uh, it was honestly, like I've, I think I mentioned earlier, I think this might be the most, like the best essay I've read in a long time. Yeah. This is my favorite article, um, I think to date in m and it's, it's, it's a really great article. So if, if you care at all about uh kids and the next generation of craft and what's going to happen and how do we uh, inspire the next generation and get them to put their iPhones down and to break up tools and work with their hands. I mean, this article is is going to be right up your alley. It's it's just a really inspiring piece. Cameron did such a good job at um, really bringing to life those, the Thoreauvian ideals. You know, you study Thoreau and, and you read all about his you know, his drive for self-reliance. He, he went into the woods to live deliberately. Well, what does that mean? If you're looking at that just theoretically, um, you can't really understand it. But he put, you know, put the tools in, in these students' hands and, uh, and they went to work to experience what Thoreau was talking about. And it, it's just awesome. Yeah. It's just and so it, much fun. And there are some really... <laughs> Cameron is a great writer. Yeah. And there are some really great sweet anecdotes in there. Uh, our favorite one I think we keep bringing up is, um, you'll have to read it, but there's this one section where um, they, were, they had these off cuts and they were so proud of these off cuts, the fact that they made these saw cuts since they had the little pieces and they brought them back to their lockers. And one of the girls said, uh, what did she say? I'm going to, I'm going to bring this home and I'm going to, I'm going to use it as a door as stop, a door stop. For, to, to lock my brother in his room. He's in seventh grade and he's the worst. <laughs> I just, just reading that, you can just hear a high school girl saying it. Yeah. That is the best. It, so the, the article is just so rich, and, and it's operating at so many levels. It's deep and meaningful and inspiring, and it's just so lighthearted and hilarious. It's yeah. awesome. So thank you, Cameron, for writing that article. Yeah, great uh, job. All our readers will be so encouraged by it. Yep. Uh, you and I had, speaking of hilarity, uh, in November... Uh, we were in North Carolina, and we spent a couple days with the man himself, mm-hmm. Roy Underhill, the Woodwright. Uh, we were we stayed with him uh, at his house. He has his house is a um, a renovated um, mill, and he has the old Miller's house there, which he uses for for guests and and uh, you know good friends like you and I who stop by. <laughs> and so we went and stayed with Roy and Jane. And got to go in and have coffee with Roy in the morning, and then uh, we head out to his school, and we uh, headed around to uh, traveled around the area. We went to um, 
Elia Bazzari's house and shop mm. and um, got some good Mexican food and um, hung out in Pittsburgh at the school. Uh, and we visited Peter Ross, too. Yeah, spent a good bit of time there. Um, just kind of mesmerized as Peter was uh, hammering away. But um, it's just an amazing time. And, you know, Roy is, he is who you see in the in the show. That mm-hmm. is who Roy is. He's not faking it. It's not like a persona. Um, he's just this genuine, uh, affable, just... <laughs> hilarious person to spend time with yeah uh so we um we interviewed him for this for this issue for issue eight got a good uh interview um uh talking all about his his past his history how he came into this world of hand tool woodworking uh you know his previous um uses of uh dynamite for digging out holes in the in the mountains of new mexico and all the way up through to um, working at Colonial Williamsburg as their first master house right, um, starting the show, which is PBS's longest-running show, uh, and now his work at the school and his his thoughts on the future of craft, uh, what what he would like to see, um, directions he would like to see uh, the this um, pursuit hand tool woodworking go in the yeah. future. Uh, it was it was so much fun to spend that time with him, and I I think that this this interview just really brings out who he is and what he's all about. Yeah, one of the goals we had was, you know, to we've been fans of Roy for a long time, of yeah. course, and watching his show and reading any interview we could find and reading his books and that kind of thing. So we felt like, you know, we know a pretty good amount about this guy, but again. Uh, we were wondering, you know, who is he really? I mean, is he, who's the man behind the suspenders? Yeah. You know, that was yeah. the, kind of the thing in our minds. And we thought, I really want to ask him some of this stuff and see, what do you really think about power tools? What do you really think about... Um, Norm Abram. <laughs> Norm Abram. What, I mean, what do you think about some of these things that you tease about? And so it was, for us, it was just, our goal was to try to bring out some of these things that maybe he would say in passing. And we thought... What do you mean about by that? Yeah. Um, what, what are what's uh, behind that? So, uh, Roy was uh, very candid with us and shared a lot of thoughts. That um, the thing that I, I can't say surprised me, but I think perhaps would surprise a lot of other people um, is how um, sensitive and sympathetic Roy is. Um, yeah. That because they see this guy who's you know he's really funny, he's a, a goofball, he's on the show, and he's really lighthearted, and you could think. It'd be easy to think, oh, yeah, he's just kind of a showman or he's kind of funny and he's a funny guy. Um, but he's a very thoughtful, sensitive person um, that um, I got glimpses of. I had that sense from the show, but it was just a really sweet time with him. So uh, we think the interview really definitely uh, – our focus was to bring that out, to show a different side of Roy that people you know, aren't haven't seen. Yeah, and another <clears throat> side of him that, that you might miss uh, watching the show – uh, but you can't miss if you like go back and find the first few episodes of the show. Uh, Roy is, I say cautiously, but he is a radical. Uh, he went into this uh, this show and his school. He he wants to change the world. Yeah. He wants to reframe the way that people look at work 
and they're, um, you know, all the, um, uh, all the, you know, the easy access to electricity and uh, um, all these uh, commodities that we have today. He wants to reframe the way we look at, you know, using our bodies to get things done. And that was his goal. He, he was talking in episode one about how people used to take local materials and simple tools and make what they needed. And it kept the energy local. It kept, um, you know, supply chain short. And people just felt like they were capable and, and confident uh, to go about doing uh, what they needed to do and making what they needed. And uh, so that that kind of has inspired the title here. Roy talks about uh, subversive woodworking. We, we call this article uh, Subversive Woodwright because he is all about, um, you know, changing people's lives, even though they might not realize at first what he's up to. Yep. So. Yeah, that is, every, he, that's all he was talking about. Yeah. How much he cares about people. Yeah. And wanting uh, the world to be a better place. <laughs> So that's what his woodworking is all about, which is, is really inspiring. Yeah. Sure. Um, but uh, another article that's kind of in that vein, I, th- I guess, is um, uh, Amy Umble wrote an article uh, called A Sense of Place. Mm. Um, and it's, it's really not too far from that kind of theme of uh, respecting uh, the world, looking at the world. And uh, this article in particular, Amy's uh, recounting sort of her way of trying to, I, I guess you could say, discover her tradition. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Which is kind of a funny way to put it, but that's what her thing is about. Um, because she, uh, as a craftsperson, was pursuing different kinds of woodworking and was really inspired by different traditions um, and uh, talks about how she would begin to want to use some symbols or some... Um, some design features from other traditions mm. that were had this strong, rich cultural connection. And it came to a point in her mind that she kind of felt like, wait, is this cultural yeah. appropriation? Yeah. Or, I like, mean, where, this, isn't this isn't my heritage. Yeah, this, so. this isn't my heritage. Yeah. So, um, so what is my role? And it's not, I don't get the sense that it was so much like it's wrong to use those symbols, but for her, it was, she was saying, well, what is yeah, my what heritage? Are, what are my symbols? Yeah. yeah. So that was, uh, she talked about that, uh, that pursuit, um, trying to find that sense of place. Um, and it's, it was great. She, um, one of the things that she latched onto as an example um, was her family's quilting tradition. Mm. And uh, she talked about, um, she said, the women in my family have always been into quilting and the Ohio star, this pattern was mm. used in many of their quilts. And so she started incorporating the Ohio star into her carvings. Um, and it got the attention of Yoga Sunquist and Beth Moen and some other people to say, um, you know, what is this symbol? What does this mean? Is this your heritage? And she, you know, was delighted to say, well, yes, this mm. is actually where I come from. And so she talks about um, that aspect that so that's the, you know, the, the culture aspect, but then there's also this nature, having a sense of place in in nature um, and our relationship to that. So culture comes out of nature. Yeah, It's like I read a, a book um, about folk crafts of Japan, and they were talking about nature manifests itself through the medium of human beings mm. because 
the stuff that human beings make is based on what's available to them locally. Right. So what culture is, is a manifestation of nature in that area. And I really got that same uh, sort of vision from Amy. And she's saying, you know, we should be as people using things in our regions mm. and, um, and not wish that we had some other kind of wood available to us or that we lived in a different area, but we should look around what we have with us that we can, our culture can be as rich as all those other cultures because that's where that came from. Yeah, I mean, every every uh, culture, every region has some craft tradition. And, you know, this day and age, we have, there's such a disconnect, you know, with just, just a few generations ago you know, for, for many hundreds, if not thousands of years, maintaining tradition and maintaining an understanding of, of your ancestors was so important. And it's only been in the last few generations when we've just lost that. We're just moving so fast. And um, Amy, several times in the article, just, you know, you can just tell that she feels that sense of loss. And that's yeah. what she's trying to come back to, trying to find that tradition, her, the tradition in the place that she's from and her, who her people are, who her, um, her craft forebears are. And it's just a really wonderful article. I mean, if you haven't seen Amy's carving, she's, she does some of the most beautiful carving yeah, oh, I've yeah. ever seen. She, d- she carves spoons and bowls and um, many different things, but just absolutely skillful. And uh, this article is really well done. It's a really fascinating uh, look at her process. Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of other places, uh, the next article, the one um, I'm going to talk about, is from the other side of the world. Uh, I don't know much about the woodworking traditions of Australia. In yeah. fact, I knew next to nothing except that I suspected that uh, their trees were different than ours, right? <laughs> That's what I've heard. And probably not the uh, the red maples and the white pines, mm-hmm. um, but... Uh, we have an article in issue eight by Dr. Mike Epworth, who lives in Australia, and he is writing about the Tasmanian chairmaking legend named Jimmy Possum. And he is genuinely a legend because he may not have even existed. But <laughs> but maybe he did. But maybe he did. And legend has it that around the turn of the 20th century, there was a man living in uh, the small town of well, on the outskirts of the town of I'm assuming I'm pronouncing it right Deloraine Tasmania uh, a man who lived in a hollow tree and made chairs to this uh, really unique vernacular style they they look a bit like uh, Welsh stick chairs mm-hmm. um, but the the framework of them I would say is is kind of totally different they're they're engineered in a way that when you sit on the seat everything tightens up all the joints get tighter and more rigid um, it's a really neat design, and uh, this it's very specific to that region. And, um, you know, that, that tradition popped up in the, the late 1800s and became really well-known in the area, and uh, collectors in, like, the 1980s were going nuts for these chairs, and then that rage, that, that kind of died off. But um, Mike, uh, Mike Epworth investigates this he's been studying uh jimmy possum the jimmy possum chair tradition for something like over 30 years and he just writes he he plums the depths of this tradition you know who could this have been uh could he have been a a first nations man Mm -hmm. um 
could he have been uh, an ex-convict like uh, so many people in that area were? Could he have been an Irish immigrant after the the Irish uh, famine, the Great Hunger? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of Irish settlers came and um, moved to that region, and maybe that explains some of the chair's uh, style influences. Um, he looks at all these different angles, and it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, really well researched. Yeah, really compelling I mean, it, stuff. S- some of the stuff about these chairs is is really this awesome mystery. He he talks about the fact that some of the early chairs uh, seem to it, it appears as if the mortises in the seats were burned out and not drilled out. Yeah, and that you know that and other things suggest that he was a a First Nations man. That he was. Um, an Aboriginal Tasmanian, um, because that is an Aboriginal Tasmanian woodworking. Uh, that that's how they bore holes. You put a little ember on it, and you use mm-hmm. like a blowpipe, and you let it burn through. Um, but uh, it's just fascinating, fascinating look, uh, and, and an exploration of who this man was. Yeah. And uh, the Jimmy Possum chairmaking tradition continues today. And uh, so he talks about that and the way that this tradition has unfolded, uh, the the way that so many people have gotten in on this, and it's really become this kind of social phenomenon of bringing people together. Um, and he, um, Mike, runs some chairmaking workshops in Australia and in Tas- in Tasmania, well, which is Australia, but on island and off, I guess, as we'd say in Maine. But. Um, it's a really well done article. Fascinating look at this uh, this mystery. So uh, we are just so excited about this issue and uh, can't wait to have it in our hands and then to get it into your hands. So yeah. have anything else? Yeah, I just, I it feels good. It feels good yeah. to have the, the book out uh, at the printer and now issue eight at the printer. And we're just so excited. There is so much... Um, in, in both of them that we are excited to share with you all. So um, please, when you get these things, uh, send us feedback, send us emails, tell us your thoughts about these things. If you have seen a Jimmy Possum chair, or if you've struggled with a sense of place, mm-hmm. or if you are curious about timber framing with another work as possible, any of those things, we love feedback. Um, we always talk about that's kind of our fuel. That's what keeps yep. us going is when we get feedback from enthusiastic readers so uh, keep sharing with us. Keep sending us notes. Um, uh, we get a, a lot of interesting uh, commentary from people and leads and have good interactions. So yep. uh, make sure to, uh, to connect with us and, and share your, your thoughts. Absolutely. So thank you all for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as Joshua said, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. And uh, we will catch you next time. Thank you.